Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Amidst the beauty of Cornwall, two women struggle with their past. One can't remember hers, and the other cannot forget it. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today, women's fiction writer Liz Fennick talks about the emotional stories of secrets and lies across generations that she loves to write and her readers love to read and explains why Cornwall is the perfect place for heart-deep drama. But before we get to Liz, just a reminder, a full transcript of our chat is available on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Liz's books, plus details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review to tell others about it so they find out what they're missing out on. But now, here's Liz. Hello there, Liz, and welcome to the show. It is great to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be here. I know it's a little predictable, but I like to start right at the beginning in storyteller fashion with that once upon a time question, was there a once upon a time moment when you just got this conviction that you had to write a a sort of an epiphany and that if you didn't write fiction, you might have been writing, but write fiction, you would somehow have been less, less than you could have been? Ooh, that's always an interesting question because I've always wanted to write for as long as I can remember. I'm an only child, so books very early on became my best friend. And my grandfather, who was from Ireland, lived with us. And he was a great storyteller. He was a huge um, lover of poetry. So I was surrounded by stories and words from a very early age. So I was that typical kid that loved a story so much that I would continue the story in my head. And eventually I reached the point where I'd start writing it down. And then I moved from that to telling my own stories. What then happened was I went to university, got my degree in English literature, wrote three quarters of a novel for my senior thesis. And then the real world happened. I um, went out and I got a job because one has to pay the rent, so to speak. And I went on to live life. Now, the interesting thing was, is that my... Professor gave me her agent's name to send off that three quarters of the novel I wrote for my senior thesis, and I never did. I chickened out. And back when I had that moment, I think you're probably talking about in 2004, when I suddenly realized that I didn't want to just write nonfiction, because at that time we were expats living abroad. I had run a huge expat organization. I gave talks on how to be an expat, how to travel with children. I'd written many articles for corporate magazines. I just realized I really and truly wanted to write fiction again. Well, I went back to look through my past papers and I found the name of the agent and I Googled her. And I thought, oh my God, what have I given up? (laughs) But 
Um, if I look back now, many years since, uh, you know, this was in 2004 and what are we, 2019, and I think, oh, I was probably a far better writer in, you know, when I was coming out of university in 1995, 96, I mean, 86, sorry, um, at, making myself 10 years younger than I am. Um, it was, um, I didn't have the life experience. The book that I had written was called An Irish Woman, and it was based on the experience of my grandmothers and my great aunts that were all living around us in the Boston area. And um, it was a cracking story. But one of the things that really made me laugh when I looked back on it was um, there was childbirth scenes in there. And I just thought, oh, my God, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> Um, so I think to become the writer that even then I wanted to be, I needed to live life, have the shiny edges knocked off me a bit, fully understand what sorrow is, what grief is, all those things that happen in the course of most people's lifetimes. Um, so when I came back to writing in 2004, I was not as skilled because I hadn't been writing fiction, but I certainly had a better grasp of what it was like to live. Yes, yes. That's a very long answer I've given you, isn't it? Yeah, that's fine. It's, it's intriguing because um, I do hear distinctly that you have an English timbre to your voice and yet I was under the impression that you were American born and you mentioned you know being in Boston so you've made Cornwall your home now but how did your international roots get established? <laughs> <laughs> um, well how did I lose the American accent that was um, a byproduct of um, my working life in the UK. I Oh, this is um, one of those funny stories in a way. It, I was 25 and I was bored with American men. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I had, um, my father was a member of the Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company of Massachusetts, which is the daughter company of the Honorable Artillery Company of London. Uh -huh. And they came over the year I was 25. Now, they'd been doing exchanges between the two things. And the first time I met this group of people, I was 13 and I was certainly not at my finest. Well, move forward to um, me being 25 and I'd gone from a mousy haired, spotty, um, wearing braces, um, teenage girl to a bit of a blonde bombshell. And um it was one of those lovely things that there was a, a drinks party on the quayside for old Ironsides in Boston. And my mother turned to me the day before. She said, oh, just you go with your father. She said, I can't be bothered. I've done enough of these over the years. So I attended this event. And it was a beautiful June evening with my father. And we were right at that age that dad was looking incredibly distinguished. And I was looking, as I said, a bit of a blonde bombshell and people's mouths you know, the jaws sort of went thinking, oh, my God, what's happened to Jim? <clears throat> Where's they? Uh, but the funniest thing was uh, one of the young men that Dad had met many years ago, they kept in touch um, over the years. And Tony hadn't seen me since I was 13. And he, my father walked up and said, Tony, you remember Elizabeth? And Tony's mouth dropped and he said, I remember Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And we just had the most fun. And I, he issued an invitation, as did several of the others that I had showed around Boston, do come to London. We, you know, we'd really enjoy showing you our city. So that was June. I went in October. One, I'm afraid to say, very intoxicated evening there. They advised me I was eligible for Irish citizenship, which I knew. And um, so the next morning, with a rather large hangover, I picked up the paperwork. That was in October. And the following April, I moved to London um, on the expectation that I'd come for about three years. Um, I met the man who's now my husband two weeks after I arrived. Wow, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the one who introduced me to Cornwall. I, less than a month knowing him, he brought me down here to his parents' house on a beautiful June weekend. And it was absolutely glorious. I mean, the hedgerows were in full flower. There were foxgloves, like exclamation marks into the deep blue sky. And I fell in love with Cornwall. And I don't think if I hadn't fallen in love with Cornwall, we'd be married coming up 28 years in July. Fantastic. So <clears throat> that's a gorgeous story. And it brings us very nicely around to your writing because you have made Cornwall your domain. And um, I wondered yes. what was special about Cornwall as a literary location, because uh, there's a, quite a range, actually, of genres that are based in Cornwall. There are the more cosy sort of mysteries, but and yours are darker and deeper. But what is it about Cornwall that's special for a writer? Oh, for a writer? Well, I think there are certain places that speak to people. And Cornwall spoke to me right from the very start. As I've sort of indicated, my roots are Irish. So the first time I went to Ireland, I felt my roots go down into the ground and connect very clearly and so forth. I came to Cornwall and I wanted that. Yeah. And I have no roots here. Well, I do now, but I, I will never be Cornish. Um, and the only way that I can hold on to Cornwall and make it mine is to write about it. And the landscape here inspires me. Cornwall is such a raw and wild place. You cross the Tamar and there's a magic and um, something that's very untamed about it. And it just spoke to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Now, number seven, I think, in the Cornish series is due out this year. Is that right? Yes, that's true. It's the path to the sea. Marvellous. I think you, I saw something on your website that indicates, or might have been a, in a, an acknowledgement in one of your books, that does indicate that you feel very much now that you have been accepted by the Cornish community. Would that be right? It is um, very much so. Um, they have opened their hearts to me. They've always been very kind to us because we've been global nomads. We bought our home here in 1996. And at that time, my husband was working in the oil industry and we were moving all over the place. And they never treated us as this was our holiday home. They understood that this was our, our base. This was the place that my children were always going to regard as home. Yes. So that helped. So I was kind of, if you will, their token American. Um, and now I'm living here virtually full time and I would say they've opened their arms fully. Oh, that's gorgeous. Now, in um, A Cornish Summer, you, you've described that to me as, quotes, a Marmite book. <laughs> 
I never actually heard that word, the Marmite, used as a descriptive um, word before. And uh, and it was surprising to me that an American would even have heard of Marmite. So I wondered if you could, first of all, perhaps explain to listeners who aren't familiar with Marmite exactly what it is, and then explain how a book can be a Marmite book. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I experience Marmite because my husband loves it on toast with butter um, and it's very salty and it's brown and I quite frankly think it's disgusting. <laughs> I think the closest thing, um, it's very rich in vitamin Bs. So it's supposedly very, very good for you. My children actually like it because I thought if my husband likes it and they're going to be living in the UK, they might as well acquire a taste for it. It is very much an acquired taste. It's not something I have ever acquired. I suppose the nearest thing, um, I think the Australians have Vegemite. Yes, that's right. Yes. Something, something yes. rather similar. So Marmite certainly isn't everybody's taste in any way, shape or form. And it, it divides people quite sharply. And one Cornish summer, in a way, does that, I think, on a couple of accounts. Um, I think the biggest one is probably the use of poetry. There's a tremendous amount of John Donne's poetry in it. And I, I use the poetry for, for many reasons, because the book is about early onset Alzheimer's, which is not an easy subject to deal with. But um, if you've ever engaged or um, worked with anybody or loved anybody who's suffering from Alzheimer's, one of the things that they hold on to frequently is music. <clears throat> now, as a writer, you'll be aware that um, copyright is an issue, particularly with music. Mm -hmm. So um, one way to move around that is to use poetry, which is out of copyright. But there was another reason that I chose John Donne's poetry. Um, one, because I love it. But two, it's so full of metaphor and it changes on every reading. Yes. And I think that really expressed who Hebe, the, the the character who suffers from the early onset um, Alzheimer, is as a pe as a person. And I, I don't think I'm breaking any um, thing that's a surprise when it comes to the book. She also uh, people also feel slightly uncomfortable with her relationship with the younger man. Yes, I must admit that's the part that I found the most challenging, particularly in this Me Too environment. You start to feel a little. Um, well, are we seeing a double standard here of one rule for a woman and another for a man? But but that's that's obviously another issue. But I can understand why some people might feel just a little shifty about about Hebe's relationship. Yes, it, it's one of the interesting things, um, and also I suppose in a way, um, Lucy. Uh, provides another, she's not the most likable character at the start of the book uh, when we don't know her motivations or anything else. So there are a lot of challenges, I think, for the reader initially in the book. But I hope um, by the end of the book, uh, people have uh, embraced both, both women into their hearts for the various reasons. Yes. And... What made you decide to to settle on such challenging characters, each in their own way? Um, well, I knew I wanted to write about early onset Alzheimer's um, because my best friend's sister is suffering from it and is sadly close to the end. And um, she, I'm an only child. They live next door to me. She was very much 
um, my big sister in a way. And when my best friend got married 11, maybe 12 years ago now, she was already uh, suffering, but not not functioning, if, if I'm making myself clear on that. And I, yes. it broke my heart. And then my mother is also not early onset, but is at the early stages of it as well. So there was part of me that was very much grieving and I, I wanted to tell that story, but I didn't know how. And then I went to a historic home here in Cornwall, Godolphin House. And it used to be the grandest house in Cornwall. But now you have a beautiful loggia and you have, you know, a, a wonderful facade, but it's nothing more really now than a big farmhouse with a couple of really grand rooms, if I'm honest. But in the central courtyard, there is one wall standing that is only half the height it once was, and it was for the Great Hall, which must have been amazing. And as I stood there in the courtyard, I thought, oh, my God, this is where I need to tell the story. Because what happened to the house with um, not being used by the then owner, who was the Duke of Leeds, um, the, the house began to fall down and stone by stone, it was taken away. And that's sort of a good image for what happens with Alzheimer's. Yes. You know, you get left with this shadow of what was once great. Yes, yeah. I felt very drawn into One Corner of Summer, and I must admit I, I just couldn't resist the temptation to Google Thomas Grills and see if there really was a fair... And I saw that it was an old Cornish name, but actually there never was a particular person, I don't think, who you based... No, no, I, I've been quite tempted at some point. I'd love... Because I obviously know his story. I had to know... I had to create this story in order to build everything else around it. So at one point, normally when um, a book goes into the smaller format, the, the tiny paperback, here in the UK, they ask you to put extra material in. And I asked, well, would people want, say, the letters between um, Thomas Grills and uh, Lucia? So they came back and said no so I thought okay well I'll store that away for another time because I was intrigued by their relationship and by him as a man and what he did um and and so forth that was great fun I loved doing that um I loved exploring the civil war history particularly around this area where I live because it's set very close to my own home yes and for those who haven't read the book it isn't exactly a dual timeline history but the character of Thomas Grills, who played a significant part in the Civil War in Britain, he 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 becomes a fascination for Hebe, one of the key characters. And so he definitely informs the whole book, even though, it, as I say, it isn't exactly a dual timeline. But you have worked on other stories that have that same historical aspect. I think The Returning Tide is partly set in the Cornwall of, in 1943. I wondered what was it about the history that, that perhaps fascinates you? Well, I've always loved history. Uh, so I was, a, I, all of my books touch history in some way. Now, The Returning Tide uh, was the one that I've written. That's probably half to almost three quarters historical, if I'm honest. 
but the other books in some way touch upon history. The Cornish House, my first book, deals with Cornish domestic architecture and there was history in that. Uh, in a Cornish affair, we have another great house and a library and how that's developed. My editor said to me, she felt that I could do historical. I thought, oh no, I'll just get caught down a rabbit hole of research and you'll never see me again. <laughs> Having said that, the book that comes out um, in June is, uh, it has a historical thread set in 1962, which for some people isn't historical, but for many readers, you know, the, the Cold War is a long time ago. Um, that's rather fun. And I've just begun research as of today on my eighth book, which will have a thread set in World War One. Oh, fantastic. And, yes. Now they've been you have they have been like to likened to Kate Morton. They they are they contain both romance and mystery, although they perhaps aren't either one fully romance or mystery. They have elements of both. How would you categorize them in terms of genre? <laughs> well, I could, I could take the broad sweep and say they're women's fiction. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is very much true. I would like to say that I write emotional fiction. I love a mystery. I love little puzzles being solved. I thoroughly enjoy writing that and I enjoy it as a reader. I also enjoy love stories. And there will always be a love story in my books, but it won't be be the central driving story of the plot. Yes. Yeah. You know, if I'm reading a crime novel, chances are I'm enjoying the crime, but I'm really following whatever the relationship story that, that is that's in it. And in my own books, I mean, with One Cornish Summer, the key relationship in many ways is between Lucy and Hebe. Yes. How that's yes. developed and, and so forth, as well as all the other family dynamics that take place in that. <coughs> So I, and in uh, The Returning Tide, it's between the sisters. You know, you, you look at that, that bond between the two of them and how something like that can be broken. So I always have that. But I also, I normally have at least two protagonists. And in my books, one of them inevitably is not going to have the happiest of endings, but the other one will have a hopeful ending. Because I also like to feel that it, everything may not be sewn up at the end, but I've left the characters at a place where the reader can feel that there's a happy future in, in the for, you know, in the future. Yes, yeah. Um, I think one Goodreads reviewer noted, you know it's not going to be an easy read when one of the primary <laughs> characters has early onset Alzheimer's, but you certainly do seem to be drawn to deeper, darker stories. Is there something in your own background that, that makes that something that you can't ignore? I don't know. I thought when I started writing fiction again in um, 2004 that I'd be writing sweet romances, but it became very apparent that... Um, my voice was darker than I imagined it to be. And as I wrote the books, by the time the Cornish House was accepted, I was writing book seven. And I'd seen, I'd seen my writing uh, develop and mature, and I saw that it was going and probing the darker things. I think I've always been fascinated by strong women. 
<clears throat> who have to confront their own weaknesses in some cases or beliefs and how they become stronger by solving it. And I don't think you're going to find that um, unless you probe some of the dark problems that happen in real life. And I think my greatest joy is if I reach readers through the emotional sides of the story. And that gives me the greatest pleasure when somebody comes, uh, there was somebody who works in a care home for Alzheimer's and she wrote me an email and she said, thank you so much. You've told it beautifully with heart, <clears throat> with understanding. I really felt lifted by it. And I thought I've done my job. Yeah, that's lovely. That is lovely. Um, you, you obviously are very much now rooted in Britain, but I've seen a reference, a little remark that some there was some suggestion that your books were quotes <laughs> too English for the US market or US readers. I'm, I'm sure that's not the case, but um, they're not frivolous books. Whereabouts do you find your most loyal readers? Perhaps that's the best way to describe it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the, the, the reason I said that is I'm not published in the US. <clears throat> oh, I see. And I didn't realise that. What else mm. has come back, at least up until recently, is editors in the US have said my books are too English. And I think ah. part of that is um, I went on a course in the US and they indicated that potentially, and it may be an English thing, is my books are slightly slower bringing you into the story. Yeah. So it's in that sense more gentle, which, um, you know, it's not a car chase at the start. Yes. Although having said that, I would argue that the opening scene in The Returning Tide throws you right into the middle of it. But um, I can see what they're saying there, and I understand a little bit more on that front what they mean by I have... I'm too English. <laughs> Where are my readers? Yeah. I certainly have a solid core of readers here in the UK. I was absolutely delighted to find I became the equivalent of a Sunday Times bestseller in Sweden uh, with my oh, great. <clears throat> um, I do very well in uh, Germany and in Holland. I'm published in 14 languages, if you count English. So pretty broad sweep at the moment. That's wonderful. I would have thought that actually just reverting back a moment to that remark about, you know, not a death in the first five pages. Um, that is something that I would say most women's fiction would have in common, that women's fiction as a category, they often do start in a slightly more reflective and emotional way. I mean, reflecting on emotion, not necessarily having a, a cataclysmic event, but but however, obviously the editors know what they're looking for. Um, mm -hmm. Seemed to me to be a fairly typical um, ca characteristic of women's fiction in itself. But you've also never made a secret that you've had some struggles with dyslexia. I think. Yes, Tell us about that. Um, I am dyslexic. I mean, in a way, it's amazing that I have a degree in English literature. Thank God that computers were coming in at that stage. I, oh, I, I thoroughly embarrassed myself in a way on Facebook as, you know, the world becomes much smaller. And the principal of my high school 
um, was making a comment about the woman who had been my English teacher in high school. Or how did it go around? At any rate, I was talking about the fact that I didn't get the A that I deserved in my um, senior year of high school because I couldn't spell. In one essay on Samuel Johnson, it was an in-class essay, I spelt Johnson five different ways. <laughs> <clears throat> and I wasn't aware of it because I couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. mm. And she could not accept that there were times when I cannot even look up a word in the dictionary because I don't know where to begin. That is extraordinary that you've become such a skilled writer. Yeah, it's, it is. It's wonderful. Well, in some ways, <laughs> I think it's become a blessing because my vocabulary, my spoken vocabulary is reasonably rich. But when I go to write, it, I simplify because I don't know how to spell many of the words that I can say, Yeah, which means that my books are much more accessible to a wider audience. Yes, yes, that, that makes sense. Um, when did that, that problem first become noticeable or when did you first realise that there was an issue? Um, in primary mm -hmm. school. Mm. Because my reading comprehension um, is far superior to my spelling and reading aloud was always a problem. I don't know if in your schooling you had to yes, we did. read mm. aloud. You know, they go around. Mm. And for me, the words don't stay on the page in the right place. Wow. Yeah. So they move. Um, it's fine if I, because of my brain, I can read a paragraph. And if the words move a bit, I'll still understand the meaning. Mm -hmm. There was no problem on comprehension. But if I had to read aloud, and it's still one of the things that does give me terrors, when I have to do a reading, I'll have practiced quite laboriously. And somebody else who's mildly dyslexic, who's an author, said to me, nobody's going to have the book open to the same page that you're reading from, so relax. Um, <laughs> which did make me um, much, much easier. But, you know, one of the advice given to uh, writers who want to get published is to read your work aloud, which I think is brilliant advice, but I can't do that because I'll read what isn't, what isn't on the page. So I have the computer read it to me. I use text to voice software, which is fantastic because it doesn't put emotion into it. So you hear clunky sentences because you can't inject anything to it. The words that are on the page is what the computer reads. And do you use that as, as part of your writing process? Oh, absolutely. It's a huge part of my writing process, especially now that I'm pretty much writing a book a year. There isn't that... Um, time to put a book aside for very long sometimes between drafts I'll only have a weekend and that doesn't give you much distance whereas if I say okay well the next edit is the one I'm going to listen to it's a different part of my brain so it gives me the distance to be able to edit the work and to, to take a harsher view of it. Now that, that's really interesting and do you find that you make different kinds of changes when you're hearing it to where, where you're looking at it on the page? Uh, yes. I, I find it very good, particularly for transitions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, there is, when a computer is reading it to you, there is no emotion in it. There is nothing to carry you from one paragraph to the next unless you 
properly link it. So I tend to hear that. I pick up plot holes more easily. It, it's a huge part of my editing process. The only problem is it takes a long time because an audio book yes. on average is, you know, anywhere from 10 to 14 hours, which isn't that long um, considering. But if you're using it as an editing tool, it will take me a week to 10 days because you do a paragraph repeatedly until you get it right. Yeah, yeah. Or a sentence and so forth. But it does prepare you for an audio book because that's frightening when you hear somebody else reading your work. Yes, actually, interestingly, just a little sideline. I, I listened to Joanna Penn. I don't know if you're familiar with her, mm -hmm. but she's quite quite an expert on the self-publishing area. And she's been doing a little bit of voice training because she wanted to start um, voicing some of her own books herself. And she's been talking in her podcast about how her writing has changed as she's been getting this voice training herself and becoming more aware of the spoken version of her own books, the earlier books, mm -hmm. and how she would now write them completely differently as she's become aware of the spoken voice. And I think with the growing audiobook market, this is just becoming quite an interesting area, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. Mm -hmm. Look, maybe just moving away from the actual writing process to looking at a slightly wider view of your life, you've described yourself as an expat expert and you've moved internationally nearly a dozen times. Tell us a little bit about your life before settling in Cornwall. Well, I spent the first 26 years of my life in, the, in Massachusetts. Um, so that was all fairly straightforward with a little bit of travel. But then I made the decision to move to the UK when I was 26. I met the man who's now my husband. Um, shortly after I arrived, we were married two years later. He was in the oil business. He'd never been posted abroad. But as soon as we were married, we started moving. So we lived in Calgary. We came back to the UK. We went to Moscow. Uh, we came back briefly. That's where I had um, my third child um, here in, in Cornwall. Um, Sasha, I had the second child out in Canada, and uh, then we did Houston, we did Indonesia, we did, were in Dubai for uh, nearly eleven years. So, and and a couple of those times coming back into the UK in between. <clears throat> so, I did learn a tremendous amount about being an expat and advised uh, companies on how to move families more effectively and more compassionately. Mm -hmm. I presume that he was English when is English. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Is <laughs> English. Very much so. That's great. Um is there one thing in your writing career more than any other that you feel is the secret to your success? Perseverance. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> I I was uh, giving a talk, uh, uh, I was the graveyard shift on a panel at a all-day seminar on how to get published on Saturday. And I was talking about the second book that was published, A Cornish Affair. And that book has been rewritten 34 times. Oh, really? So I would say the reason that I'm here, book seven is coming out, I'm working on book eight, is because I 
persisted. I kept going. And there were times, believe me, when I thought I should stop. Um, I belong to the Romantic Novelist Association, which has a new writer scheme, which is what I joined. And in the new writer scheme, you have to produce a novel a year and a published author will critique it. It's a great program. And when I was doing that, the, the deadline to submit the, the novel is at the end of August. And we were here in Cornwall for the summer. And it was a summer, it, not like this past one, but many summers here can be quite rainy. And the two weeks that we had sun was in the run up to the deadline. And the kids were young enough that they couldn't do anything other than play in the garden unless I took them. Well, I was under deadline. And I felt really bad because they spent an awful lot of time uh, playing video games and killing each other in the garden while I was trying to meet the deadline. And at the end of the summer, I said to the kids and to my husband, do you want me to stop? Do you want me to give up? And my son, who's now 26 and a mechanical engineer, he looked at me and he said, no, mom, I just want you to be better at time management. <laughs> So, um, you know, all things that I also knew at that point, because they were behind me, that what would I teach them if I gave up? Yes. Yeah. What I wanted to show them is having dreams is important. And it is very important that there isn't a deadline on reaching your dreams. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You've mentioned at one stage that you were a dreamer who became a doer. This seems to feed quite nicely into that, that sentence. Yes. <laughs> um, I had thousands of dreams. The biggest one was I wanted to be a writer, to be a published um, author. And that I didn't, in my early life, although I had the talent, I didn't have the perseverance. I didn't have the thick skin that it takes because not everybody's going to like your books and you know editors rarely tell you after they bought the book what they like they'll tell you what's wrong and you need to fix yeah. it but you don't you don't get those glowing little pats on the back that you'd quite like along the way um but yeah I've learned how to take dreams and make them happen yeah yeah, that's wonderful. Look, we're starting to run out of time together. So turning to Liz as reader, this podcast is called The Joys of Binge Reading, um, and it mainly has focused on series authors mm -hmm. or people like you who write in similar locations so that the books sort of do flow together. Um, who are you reading at the moment and, and who would you recommend to listeners? Well, I just picked up Diane Setterfield's latest book, um, A River Runs Through It. So that is the next big read for me to go into. And um, she wrote The Thirteenth Tale and uh, Bellman in Black. And she writes exquisitely. And I'd love to be able to write like her. Um, I love her work. Um, when you were talking about binge reading, I think the person I associate most in my life with binge reading is Georgia Ayer. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. I, that is my entire comfort read. And I, if I really need to lift my soul, I will dive in and read a couple of those back to back. Um, I know there are so many. I love Kate Atkinson. Um, uh, gosh, I, I, inevitably, despite the fact I should have written the names down, because when I people always ask me this question and then I suddenly freeze and think, ooh, 
but those are key ones that um, are ones I'm really looking forward to. Yes, yes, and they very much seem to lie in the in the area of women's fiction and historical fiction. Historical fiction is probably my go-to read. Yes, um, it's what I love the most, which is why I was probably afraid to write it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Um, which is why I probably straddle it, doing the two timelines uh, frequently. You know, I feel as if there might be a Civil War book there somewhere because certainly Thomas Grills seemed to indicate quite a fascination with that time. Well, it's hard not to around here. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Um, we have a Civil War cannonball that was found in our house. Oh, really? When they were renovating it, yes. So, it, you know, it's very close to the surface here. Yes, yeah, yeah. Do you think you would ever go in that direction yourself? And write purely historical? Yes, purely historical, yeah. Oh, I don't I know. mean, like the Thomas and Lucia story, for example, that in itself, there's already a book waiting to be written about them. There certainly <laughs> is a book waiting. Um, I don't know. I, I don't <laughs> think, I think the market for purely historical books is very tricky at the moment. Yes, um, yes. So yeah. I think I will stick with my dual timeline allowing myself to stick my foot into um, the water but not be fully immersed. Sure, sure. Then you've got a wider appeal, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Look, circling back, looking back across what's your experience and focusing on today, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what, if anything, would you change? I wouldn't change anything. Uh -huh. I've been absolutely delighted. I am so grateful, you know, that it came to me at this point in my life, at a point when many women wonder, you know, the kids were raised, we stopped traveling around the world. I was suddenly in my late 40s. Oh, what could I do? I hadn't practiced my profession in years. It was just the ideal time to, to blossom, if yes. you will. So I would change anything about it at all that's fantastic and what is next for Liz the writer what are you working on new projects new projects so book eight which will be set world war one and current day and moving it'll be about the Tamar so the river Tamar which divides Cornwall and Devon so uh, that should be quite interesting uh, to do and as I say the one that comes out in June A Path to the Sea is um, again part historical three protagonists this time a grandmother a mother and a daughter and so many secrets it's beyond belief <laughs> secrets are great aren't they <laughs> do you enjoy connecting with your readers and if so where can they find you online um, I love connecting with my readers. I have great fun and I've, um, I've been so blessed to meet quite a few of them. I am on Twitter uh, as Liz underscore Fennec. I am on Instagram at, with the same name, Liz underscore Fennec. And I'm also on Facebook, Liz Fennec author. And um, there's rarely a day that I don't appear on one of them. I'm also on Pinterest, but that's more if you're curious to see what things look like because I tend to pin photos of my research as I go along or as an aid memoir for me than anybody else but if you wanted to know that uh, kit in Under a Cornish Sky actually looked like Paul Bettany um, 
you'd find that out there. <laughs> it's funny. We that felt like telepathy because I just felt a question forming in my mind. Did you ever imagine your characters as you know actors or or, or famous people? And then yeah, yeah no, I absolutely do. Um, particularly as I always write from. Um, a female point of view. I rarely give much description about the women I'm writing about unless it's essential to the plot of the story. So I think in one, you barely even know what she looks like um, other than it relates to what is going on. But the hero is seen through her eyes, so I have to visualize. And I really have a tough time with that because I tend to pick actors I really am fascinated <laughs> with. So Paul Bettany is Kit in One Cornish Summer. Um, there's no question about that, and um, yes, I'll have to go and look him up. I actually don't. don't a, a face doesn't immediately come um, to mind. <laughs> have you ever seen the film Wimbledon? No, I haven't. No, I, I'll go and have a look. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Liz. Well, look, it's been wonderful talking. Thank you so much for your time, and um, we really wish you all the best with your writing. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. I've really enjoyed myself. It's lovely. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.